This season of Well and Good with Art and Matilda is brought to you by Subaru. We love Subarus, and we think they're the perfect car for Kiwis. Indeed they are, Art, because Kiwis are doers, right? And so are Subaru drivers. We're the kind of people who are always pushing to sneak that little bit more out of life. We stay out surfing for that one last wave. We sneak in a trip down to the river for a swim. And we stay at the beach eating our fish and chumps until the very last speck of light is gone. So if you want to do more, do it with Subaru. So today on the podcast, we have Professor Grant Schofield and Dr. Karen Zinn. Both of these guys are super clued up on nutrition. Karen Zinn is a dietitian and academic at AUT. And Grant is a number of things, Professor of Public Health and Director of the Human Potential Centre at AUT Millennium. Yeah, these guys are a couple of people that I really look to for inspiration and knowledge and direction in terms of health and nutrition, and they're really leading the way uh, on functional food as medicine. Uh, so this is a really interesting podcast and one that um, we hope you'll get a lot out of. Super interesting. They also uh, co-wrote What the Fat and What the Fast, um, so they really clued up on, on that sort of stuff. So if you're into nutrition, we take a real deep dive in this one, so I think you'll be really, really interested. And we are live, Professor Grant Schofield and Dr. Karen Zinn, thanks for chatting with us today. You're welcome, good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, I've been really excited about this chat actually, because we're both huge fans of both of you, so so we've been quite excited about this, like, oh, what are we going to talk about? There's so much to discuss. Yeah, there's so. almost too much, so we'll try and cover off as much as we can, I guess. You know, you both um, co-authored What the Fat, What the Fast, and your more recent one, What the Fat with Recipes, which is... Quite cool. We were just flicking through that before. It looks delicious. Yeah, looks um, really good. Before we get stuck into too much stuff, I want to cover all sorts of different things. But uh, maybe if you guys could just give us a bit of a background about yourselves, sort of maybe your current positions that you're in in your industry, and then also a little bit of a brief history just around how you came to be in the current positions that you're in and what led you to having and adopting the philosophies around health and and your passions. Okay, I'll, I'll start. Yeah. So I am a senior lecturer at AUT, and alongside that, I am in clinical practice. So I'm a dietitian, and I've been doing clinical practice for ever since I qualified. So that combination I find really good, the research, the teaching, and the practice. It just It's a nice little triangle. And what got me, what got me into this area... I guess, Grant, you are part of the story. My story is a story that almost involves no story, no health story, which I think is actually uh, holds a lot of impact because I didn't come from a personal, I used to be overweight or I used to have diabetes or thyroid problems and I tried everything until I found low carb and that's it. So I've, I've never been overweight. I don't have any health problems that I know of. So my change to kind of whole food, low carb w- was really by accident. I'd certainly come across a lot of the stuff in the 80s, the, the you know, the Atkins stuff, mm. which, of course, I knocked on the head and told all our students that ketosis was dangerous and they'd get bad breath and die of heart disease. <laughs> so apologies if any of you guys are listening. But it was really probably about six and a half, seven years ago when, you know, at our, our research centre, Human Potential Centre, 
Grant comes in one day with with the great idea that he usually has once a week. And this week it was all about low carb. You know, why are we telling people to eat lots of carbohydrate when they are insulin resistant? And some questioning around that was was really was really quite interesting. The key question was, so if you have diabetes, you are insulin resistant. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. So if you are insulin resistant, it means that you have trouble moving your carbohydrate around the body easily, correct? Yep, that's correct. So then why do dietitians manage diabetes or type 2 diabetes with a high-carb diet? And I'm going, well... Look, there must be a good reason. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go and figure out why. So I actually, it sort of prompted me to do the research to make this story go away. And of course, the more you delve into the research with this healthy amount of logic, it just eventuated to oh my god, I think we've got this all wrong, mm. and it sort of spiraled from there. So that really is is my story. It's not a health story. It's more of a look at the research, look at the evidence, think about it logically, look at evolution. And, you know, Bob's your uncle. And when you put it that way, it's like, how can you argue with that? Yeah, you know? well, ex- exactly, exactly. And, and when you talk about whole unprocessed food and the authorities give you a hard time about it, you think, really? I know. Yeah, it's so simple and it makes so much sense, yet yeah. we're yeah. being told it's wrong. Yeah. yeah, so that's my story. Mm. How about you, Grant? Uh, yeah, so when I was a high school student, I was really uninterested in sport and biology for some reason so like biology really turned my stuff and then I sort of dropped out of school altogether because I was more interested in sport and then eventually I went to university and because everyone I knew who were males were engineers I started that and lasted a week (laughs) (laughs) and then I went and did a a science degree in physiology because that was the only thing that had any interest to me and and some psychology because that sounded like it could be interesting. I was never really any going to be any good at going and getting a decent job so I just carried on studying. I couldn't think of anyone who would employ me gainfully, so I just carried on <laughs> studying. You know, and then all of a sudden you've got a, a, a PhD in yeah. physiology and psychology. You've and you've studied everything there is to yeah, study. Well, and then, yeah, and then you have to get a job. So I got a job eventually in Australia. I became a registered psychologist. I'm, for the record, what's required for a psychologist is someone who shuts up and listens and doesn't offer immediate solutions, which is why I'm so bad at that. Mm. <laughs> you know, that obviously needs to marital issues as well because what you should do, guys, if you're listening out there, is when your partner's saying stuff as you quietly listen and empathise with them, which is all good in theory. You never try and fix it. <laughs> yeah, no, never try and fix it. <laughs> no but, but I yeah. that one. Oh, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. So I couldn't do that. And at the same time, I kept my passion for sport up. I was a triathlete. I was racing as a pro. I was doing okay. Wasn't, I was winning enough money to work a bit and, and train a bit, like doing that. And then in the mid-90s, really became this revolution that there was this inactivity epidemic going on and we were less fit and the benefits that conferred had just been lost. So I really got into public health as my field and that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. I sort of followed this and I I do feel embarrassed. We got a lot of money to do especially obesity-related work with exercise, which just doesn't actually work. And Mm. so we had a lot of failure. Uh, And three things happened to me all about seven or eight years ago that Karen talked about. First of all, I had to drop out of being an athlete because I'd got inflammation and overtraining through my own stupidity. But specifically, I had lymph nodes the size of peanuts in my groin for a decade. I just couldn't resolve them. I had every conceivable test, tried diets, this, that, and the other thing. Nothing worked. So I wasn't really doing anything. There's a lot said about female weight gain post-birth. And I got the male version of that for some reason. So I'd, I'd gone up from 80-odd kilos to 104 
wow. after the birth of our first two kids. So watch out for that, Art. They, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's both of us. <laughs> yeah, what, what caused that? What do I have to look out for? Well, I just wasn't, I was inactive and I just lost track of being careful about my diet. Yeah. And, and I hadn't realised, because I was still trying to take the low-fat approach, I hadn't realised the pervasive nature of insulin and carbohydrates for weight gain. And I'd also been doing this work for the, this is like the best job you could ever get. World Health Organisation, South Pacific, contracts you to do work in the remote South Pacific in places where people aren't sick, but the WHO thinks, well, look, they could get fat and sick, just go along there and take a few blood pressure tests and make sure they don't. And so you end up in these beautiful places, in southern Vanuatu and these sorts of places, just gorgeous, getting paid to go there and, you know, you measure a few blood pressures, everyone's healthy and you just hang out on the beach. Uh, (laughs) What a job. Well, but it's a stark contrast because you had this sort of live long, drop dead situation, right? So people would come to the end of their life and they'd have what you call an idiopathic death. They'd be extensively healthy up until a couple of weeks and then they'd get sort of a range of undescribed things and then they would just die quietly in their sleep, which I think is what we're all after. Mm. And then you would go back to the capital cities of the Pacific Islands like Vila and Vanuatu or Nukalofa and Tonga and these sorts of places, and the exact opposite was happening. You had pretty much the highest diabetes and chronic disease of any of the countries in the world. People were getting limbs chopped off through complications of diabetes, and, and they were living long and dying slowly, which is what no one aspires for. And, no. and you sort of look at the World Health Organization's nutritional guidance, which is outrageously low fat, you know, eat um, less, move more, and it's obvious that it's just not the solution because the exact opposite, the people who aren't doing that are living long, and the people who are doing that aren't. Then Tim Noakes had come along, a colleague of ours in South Africa, and he'd sort of come out, if you want that description, about mm. and torn up his book, Law of Running. And I think Nick Gill's spoken about that in previous podcasts on with you guys. That was a real watershed for me. And then we started engaging with my colleagues at the university, and then we started our own research, and we just said, hey, this is just wrong, and something needs to be said. What I hadn't anticipated, of course, is in exercise and fitness and physical activity research, you come up with an idea hypothesis and people go, oh, we'll test that and we change our mind. It's just not that contentious. But who knew in diet, when you come out with something different, a new hypothesis, it's a whole different political and social situation. Why is that? Why do you guys find that in the nutritional industry? It seems kind of bizarre, right? If you're just saying, well, we have tests that, that prove this and this is what we believe and people say no, no, that can't be right. Like why aren't people open to other research? Well I, th- I think there's a few or things. Up, or updating, updating research. Yeah, and, updating research. Yeah. Well first of all because I think everyone eats so everyone has an opinion on food. That's true. Uh, so that's one. Second is I think the industry has purposely pervaded and corrupted scientific research and that's now well documented especially big sugar stuff in the 70s and the diet heart hypothesis. So that, that and I think, so are you talking about then, I think there, there's, you know, so many studies that are done to do with nutrition and a great proportion of them are actually funded by food bodies, aren't they? So when you do that, we know, and there's research on the research that mm. fundamentally biases the outcome. You know, when they're not funded versus funded, you find completely different things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the second thing about eating is that you always have to ask people what they ate and the recall of that, depending on the time frame, what do you usually eat? What did you have mostly over the last year versus what did you eat yesterday? Completely different answers. Yeah, and also I think with exercise, if you take it down to its simplest currency, you can say, just do a little bit more and we'll be healthy. Mm-hmm. So there's no controversy there. Whereas nutrition, you've got things that are helpful and things that are harmful. And if you have too much of this, it means you're having less of that. And it's just too complicated. Mm-hmm. And the emotional aspect, people eat for so many different reasons, when they're happy, when they're sad, when they're bored, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it just makes the whole area 
a lot more complex. I think also from a research perspective, new research is being done. It is being updated. But traditionally, it's done in the paradigm that people believe it sits in. So that high-carb, low-fat paradigm, all the research was being progressed in that area. Mm. Another area just wasn't being entertained. And then you also got a religious overlay that there's a lot of religion and food wrapped up together. Just before I came here, I was just reading a research paper published in a journal called Religion by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, just saying how they were using vegetarianism as a path to recruit potential believers. And so they're proudly publishing it there, and we've influenced this many billion people. And so you've got all these different layers going on that other fields just don't have. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So where did that whole low-fat, high-carb approach start? Because that was back in the 70s. And why did that suddenly become a thing that fat was so terrible? Well, I think it started in the 1950s with Ansel Keys' study. So Ansel Keys was a renowned researcher, and he went to many different countries around Europe, and he looked at what people ate, and he looked at what diseases they had. One of the key findings that he came up with was all correlation-based stuff. He found a correlation between initially between total fat intake and coronary heart disease, which then got filtered down into saturated fat intake, coronary heart disease, so positive correlation. And it was that really that spiraled into the guidelines. When you you fast forward several years or several decades, when you look back into that research, it is seriously flawed. It was initially called the Seven Country Study, but actually he did it in about 22 countries. And when you put all the countries on the map, the correlation just drops. There's no correlation between coronary heart disease and saturated fat. But also, if you want to look at a stronger correlation, the one between sugar and heart disease was was there, black and white, but just got pushed under the table for a whole host of political, uh, bureaucratic reasons. So I think the guidelines started with, we need to drop fat. And because you need to drop fat, you need to up something else. So there were no guidelines or no research that said we need to eat high-carbohydrate diets. It just got there because we needed to eat (laughs) There's a little bit more there as well, doesn't it? Because pre-World War II, the German metabolic scientists owned that field. And the predominant view was that sugar and starch were the primary cause of a range of what you call metabolic issues. Uh, They lost the war and they lost the scientists, and that was the end of that. And then the hypothesis sounds quite reasonable. It's like, well, fat in the diet would mean that you've got fat in your blood, and that fat in your blood might somehow accumulate in your arteries, and especially the ones around your heart, that's coronary artery disease, and they get blocked up, that's a heart attack, or if it's in your brain, it's, it's quite a, a good little narrative, isn't it? You're yeah. like, oh, yeah. it makes yeah. sense, yeah. it's yeah. the same yeah. word. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, yeah. and because fat has also got twice as many calories for the same volume as other food, it's like eating fat causes fat to accumulate around your body and make you fat, and in reality, the only thing that's true there is that they're all spelt the same. Um, FAT, and that's the end of it. So that was the diet heart hypothesis and then these nutritional guidelines. And that was really the, in the mid-70s when, when governments started thinking, well, we should tell people what to eat, um, and it might make them healthier. But there could be perverse consequences from that. And I'd say now that that was one of the biggest medical misadventures in the history of modern medicine, is getting those guidelines in without the evidence meant that you've created actual harm from what you're telling people rather than benefit. And no one wanted that. I'm sure the people doing that weren't wanting to harm people, but it's just the way it's worked out. And so we're now we're trying to tip that on its head and go, hey, we've got this a bit wrong. And in my view, modern medicine's at this pain point where we desperately need to change things. And it's not the first time in medicine. It's happened heaps of times before, but mm. we'd like it to happen quicker. So the nutritional guidelines currently in New Zealand, are they based off the American guidelines? Yeah, the Americans dictate. Mm. 
So all the guidelines around the world are all similar. They vary within a percentage or two when you look at the macros. And the recommended daily intakes are all, you know, they're based on different countries and different food supplies, but essentially they're all the same. Wow. And I think the other problem was the, the RDI, which is the recommended daily intake, and how they developed the food group guidelines. Were, it was just astonishing when you, when you read the history. So 6 to 11 servings of grains, 2 to 3 servings of dairy, 1 to 2 servings of meat, all that kind of stuff. It was basically because they got these recommended daily intakes of different nutrients, which they established from various means, but it came from war rations initially, and they established them from looking at deficiency states and then repletion states and what threshold you would establish a you know, calcium deficiency or vitamin yeah, B1 So nothing deficiency. to do with being healthy and no, vibrant. It had no, to be with not depleted no, of, of, of some basic nutrients. Exactly. Yeah, right. But what they did was, they, you know, in simple language, they put it all up on a dartboard and said, right, so we need to have this much B1, this much B2, this much B3. Let's throw some food groups up. And if you have lots of whole grains, they'll tick all these boxes. Right. And if you have dairy, it will tick these calcium and phosphorus and magnesium boxes. And we've stuck to the guidelines, and that's why there's been such a pushback when you know paleo started coming. You can't, you can't not eat grains or dairy. You can't cut you, out a you food can't group. Cut up a whole food group, <laughs> really? Well, what if I get my micros from a different one? Mm. No, 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 you can't. Mm. So there's a lack of logic in there. Yeah, because um, when I first fell pregnant, I just had a look online and said what to eat when pregnant, and it was like these official guidelines that said you should be having six servings of bread or cereal a day. Oh, my goodness. I know, and I thought Mm. to myself, that can't be right. Mm. Six servings of bread a day. Then you go for your gestational diabetes test and... That's what I thought, because I did find it really bizarre that apparently gestational diabetes is really common and you just Mm. get diabetes when you're pregnant. And then I said, oh, what happens if you're being healthy? And they say, no, you can still get it. Well, is that because people are following these guidelines that are mm. completely wrong? And then if you get it, how do you manage it? With six servings of grains. Yeah, exactly. We need to move towards more logical nutrition management of these things. Yeah. And, like, is that what's happening? Are, are we moving towards a more positive nutritional guideline sort of framework? I mean, the science about fat not being the enemy anymore, like, that's quite a few years old now, but it hasn't been updated in the food guidelines, Well, right? probably it has a bit in our food guidelines. They don't really probably have a cap on fat now, so I think fat's becoming more in. They're still rampantly against saturated fat, though, mm. um, which, you know, really they still. I mean, they still promote low-fat milk as yep. opposed to whole-fat mm. milk. That's because they're scared of the saturated fats in there. Right. And, e- even and though it's interesting because the dairy research shows totally otherwise, that the full-fat dairy is more protective against a lot of diseases compared to low-fat dairy. Yeah, mm. yeah, I mean, yes, there's no... You know, adolescent there's, obesity you would be, you would and coronary heart disease. You would be doing harm by, by recommending mm. low-fat. And it's, the other thing, guys, that you should remember is that guidelines, guidelines, who takes any notice? Well, I think where they most perversely rear their head is where they're most not needed, which is in hospitals and hospital food. So you end up with hospital foods being on these guidelines. If anyone's been in a hospital or a patient recently, I think they'll just go, oh, my Lord. What are we feeding these actual sick people? It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And so the only real way around it now is to be well off enough that you can have people bring you food. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, because otherwise... Yeah, otherwise you're getting a white bread sandwich. Um, with jam with and jam. some yogurt that doesn't even have any Low-fat food yogurt, in it. You know, and it's then just... a, a fruit juice full of sugar. And it's yeah. just, yeah, it's crazy. It's astonishing. It's dire. Because I know that both of you are huge advocates for a whole food approach. So when you say whole foods, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, that's really interesting because we were talking about this on the way over. 
the definition of whole foods is just a huge spectrum, really. People say, oh, whole grain bread is a whole food. Really? Well, not in my book. Yeah, it seems quite subjective. It is. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've, you've got a spectrum and you've got on the one end of the spectrum, everyone would agree that you've got ultra uber processed foods like chips, chocolates, biscuits, cakes, that kind of stuff, junk food. So everyone would agree that's ultra-processed. And on the other end, you've got your foods that literally don't come in packages. So your meat, fish, chicken, eggs, nuts, seeds, fruit, vegetables. And then you've got this blend in between where you've got minimally processed foods and slightly more minimally processed (laughs) foods, and you can slot them in where you want to. There is a classification system. It's called the NOVA classification system, and that has been used in research to classify processed foods, but I think we can do better than that. I I use that human interference factor, the HI factor. So if it was, you know, basically, if it's recognisable as being recently alive in nature, growing somewhere or running around in nature, then you're probably going to be all right to eat it. If that was the only nutritional guideline for healthy eating in this country... I'm sure would be miles better off. Yeah. It, it is interesting because it's the way you communicate this to people as well. So I say to people, when, when you're shopping in the supermarket or in the vegetable shop or whatever, buy foods that don't come in packages generally and, and you'll be pretty safe, apart from, <laughs> apart from a few things. And if you are buying foods in packages, like yogurt, for example, have a look at the number of ingredients and the less number of ingredients the better and the less processed and the less stuff that's in there. And the more that you can understand it as yeah. well. Like, so yeah, like flags for a product being processed, would you be looking for big sciencey words and or numbers? You'd be looking for words that you don't understand, like maltodextrin. Not everyone knows that that is sugar. And there oh, they're are so clever at hundreds, hiding it, aren't they? Yeah, there are <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words emulsified. If you look at the food additive lists, they go for pages and pages and pages. So... You don't expect people walking around the supermarket to have nutrition degrees. Yeah, actually, that's a big one that I wanted to raise with you guys because it can be really difficult for Joe Blogs like me to do your own research because there are so many people telling you like what to eat, what's healthy, what's not, and essentially you're kind of slaves to what the media tell you, which we've learnt is, a problem. is a huge problem because yeah. most of the time it's completely misinformed. And so I want to do my own research, but I have no idea how. So I'm Googling these studies and I can't read them because I just, I'm not scientifically qualified. And so deciphering a raw study is incredibly hard. So do you have advice for people that want to do their own research, but they just don't know where to start? Well, I've I've always tried to write about that in my books, frankly. It's been my main part of the contribution is try to get science in lay terms. Mm. Like, I reckon the science is understandable, but you're right, you go to the original paper, good luck with that. Yeah. So I've always tried to think of that as my thing that I'd like to be good at. I'm still aspiring, Yeah. uh, obviously, because I haven't quite changed the world yet. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, we're trying to. Yeah. Uh, So I've tried to do that in that aspect on my blogs or in, you know, this podcast and stuff is to, to... I still think podcasts are a great way for that to happen. You get to listen to the original scientists talk about their research, and there's so many good ones out in there to, to listen to a range way. of. And, and there's so many things you can't write in a paper that are much more useful. 
And mm. so that's a great source. It's a great source for the scientists as well, frankly. I listen to that and get, get the light out of yeah. it. That's, yeah. Yeah, what, you, what you kind of just touched on there is, is what I do personally, is I kind of identify a few different scientists or people that are you know, really knowledgeable in the industry and then like you guys. And I follow you guys and I see, I read your blogs and I keep up to date with your views and the science that you've discovered because it's kind of like having these experts that I trust that then do all the research and then, you know, you don't have to do a whole bunch of reading and you kind of just sum it up. <laughs> yeah, and, I, I think and, and there's sensible. more coming out than you mm. can possibly ever look at. Yeah. yeah. That, that is sensible because actually if you go through some of these papers, particularly the ones that have been current at the moment, like the red meat and bowel cancer and red meat and, you know, red meat and, and every problem Ooh, in the world. Oh, let's talk about that. Oh, yeah, that's a good mm. one. Yeah, so, 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 so in a second, but, but when you actually go to the actual studies... They're quite complicated to read. And the conclusions that they draw, even in their own paper, are different from their own data Mm, or or have a slant on it. So the red meat one Mm. is a classic example. There's one just out going there's a link between uh, red and processed meat and increased prevalence of bowel cancer. And that was true in this prospective study. In other words, they followed, asked people what they had, and they followed them and they saw that. And, and that's been true in other studies as well, but it's really generally when you divide up processed and unprocessed meat, it's the processed meat where the effect lies. In this particular study, they go, well, there's a 20% increase in bowel cancer. Interestingly, there was no effect in women. The only effect we've seen in men, which is the one they reported in the media. So ignore half the population for a start. <laughs> yeah. and, I'll just lump them yeah. in, you know. And, <laughs> and then you go, well, what is it? That, this 20% increase, that's what you just talk about as relative risk. But in reality, the risk of the seven-year risk of bowel cancer went from 0.5 of one percent, so half a percent, to 0.6 of one percent. My goodness! And so you would need the whole population reducing to the lowest amount of meat for seven years for that difference. And you go, well, that might not be worth it because mm. it might be just yeah. more fun to. And there might be other good effects of eating meat. So it gets, it's just complicated. Yeah, it, it is complicated. And just to add to that, the, the two bugbears that I have with these studies, and the one is, firstly, they lump processed meat with standard non-unprocessed meat. But also in their processed meat category or their meat category, they include things like hamburgers and hot dogs and things that have refined carbohydrate included in them as well. Okay, if you said there's a problem with processed meat, look at processed meat and there's a big difference between a good quality European chorizo sausage versus chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. So I think within the processed meat category, there is there's a difference. And I think one of the biggest problems with these epidemiological studies is dietary recall. If I said to you, how many servings of processed meat have you had over the last... 12 months, <laughs> you know, it's really, really flawed. You know, and no. I, came, I came across this, this interesting study about epidemiology, and it said that everything can be correlated with everything. <laughs> so we, we need to be very, very careful. So when true. I see headlines like that, I take a deep breath and go, right, I, I need to go to my Facebook page and calm the storm that's happening and tell people that they need to calm down because here are the flaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess part of that dietary recall thing is that we eat so mindlessly now. You know, we, we don't really tend to savour our food or just think about the food when we're eating it. We just kind of shovel it in, you know. or, or While we're watching or, a TV show. Yeah, or something. yeah mm. exactly. So, so I guess that kind of plays into it, doesn't it? And, and also we eat quite... 
a lot more complicated than we used to. If it was meat and three veg like the old days, you could probably recall that better. Mm-hmm. But now with sauces and and additives and and restaurant foods and and Asian fusion, you try and describe the food that you shared with five of your mates at Mexico restaurant. You try and describe what you <laughs> had. Um, no it's idea. sort of impossible. It really is. <laughs> Tasting plates, shared. Oh, yeah. Yep. Going back to the red meat thing, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I've, I've heard before, is that part of the reason the correlation between red meat and uh, colon cancer was potentially due to the other foods that these participants were eating as well, predominantly grains and carbohydrates containing gluten, because that had something to do with slowing down the transit times and your gut and, and your colon and things like that. Yeah, bowel. yeah. I haven't delved into that? the paper, but again, if they're looking at one line of evidence, which is red meat and cancer, bowel cancer, they are unlikely to be looking at a different line of grains and the intricacies behind that. So I think your comment is absolutely plausible, and I have no doubt it's the other things and the lifestyle factors would Mm -hmm. influence. And actually, if you look at how they divide these groups up, they've got the highest red meat eaters and the lowest red meat eaters, and typically the highest red meat eaters are also the people who do less physical activity, are on more medications, they are more likely to be smokers. So there are other lifestyle behaviours that affect their story. Well, the, the other one of that, of course, is the vegan Bible, which is T. Colin Campbell's China study, which really claims that red meat does all these bad things. And you look in that study, and what is the strongest predictor of all-cause mortality, dying of anything? It's wheat flour. Not reported. You can go back and, wow. you know, there's been other things done there, and it's, you know, that's the vegan Bible, really. And it's just selective reporting. Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Sabaru. Well, it's no secret that both you and I bloody love Sabaru. We both drive them. Yep, that's no secret. Well, I drive a Sabaru Forester and that one car of the year last year in 2018. It's a medium SUV, and you may ask, what does a medium SUV mean? Well, it means you get all the good stuff of an SUV, of like feeling, you know, quite cool and high up in your big car. But it's a lot easier to to drive around the city, and it's a lot easier to park, which is a big one for me. I mean, I kind of need all the help I can get in that department. Mm, Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, okay, I can understand why that one car of the year. Mm. And it's super safe, it's comfortable, and it's full of tech. Some of that tech exclusive to Subaru. Well, like what? Well, like the driver recognition system. So, for example, if you get in my car and drive it, which sometimes happens, and you change all the settings, you're putting the chair back, you're turning the mirrors, and then if I get back in the car, it's going to scan me, know who I am, and put all my settings back in place automatically. That is quite cool tech. I know. It's super epic. And what do you drive? Outback. Thoughts? Sabaru Outback. Love it. It's the people's car, the car of New Zealand. Why is that? Well, it does everything. You can you drive around the city. It's all-wheel drive. You can shoot up the mountain. It's got built-in roof racks, chuck some boards on the roof, head down for a surf, big enough space in the back. You can go on road trips. You can, I've slept in the back. It's that big. Yeah, that is actually impressive because you're quite tall, aren't you? Mm, correct. So go on. Go check out one for yourself. Visit Subaru.co.nz to check out the Subaru range and find an SUV to suit your lifestyle. And unlike Auckland's house prizes, they're totally affordable. It's really interesting, actually, you know, just different diets and different different philosophies on nutrition. There's definitely a large global movement, I think, towards plant-based diets. 
you know, I quite like to try things out for myself and give everything a go. So I just did a month of eating a plant-based diet. So it was a whole food plant-based diet. So I stayed away from any of the processed vegan options for anything as well, just because I didn't want to touch that stuff. I looked at the back of a packet of no meat sausages and I was just disgusted by the amount of just horrible numbers and things in there. I just, I couldn't bring myself to buy them. So you didn't have vegan cheese either? No, no, I, tr- <laughs> I tried one slice of vegan cheese and I just thought oh, this was just not, not worth it. I wanted to do it just purely for a nutritional little experiment for myself. It wasn't anything to do with ethical reasons or sustainability, but I did get a lot of feedback from people, a lot of messaging back and forth through social media about their beliefs on a plant-based diet. And I found that I think a lot of the time my, my view is that people's uh, opinion on the nutritional merit of a certain type of diet is often dictated by other um, other biases. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the time uh, someone following a plant-based diet may already have a preconception that it's a lot better for the planet or it's a lot better for animal welfare. And then they kind of tell themselves that it's then superior nutritionally to a diet containing animal products in it. Yeah. And so That's w- where it falls down. You're and, absolutely right. And so what you'd need to do to find out this scientifically, and Karen and I were talking about this in the way over, in fact, we decided we're going to do this study. And so uh, you can <laughs> do all need, these. You can ask people and, and, and follow them, of course, and, and that sort of stuff. That's one level of research. But the, the gold standard in science is a randomised trial. So people come in, you get allocated to this group or this group, and you compare them. What you would need to do to tell whether a plant-based, a, a vegan diet, was better than the equivalent quality but containing animals they would need to be going to randomise two groups. And one, they're identical diets with macronutrients to so get the same amount of carbohydrate, protein and fat. They're, they're as identical as you can get for micronutrients. And you substitute out the, the meat for other quality plant protein. So they're both sound diets. And then you would measure them for a period of time and see if there was any difference. Now that study, that's the only way you could tell whether the meat was the cause of benefit or harm. And that study's never been done. So without that study, you can't. No one can say whether that would happen. So we end up doing it ourselves and going. Well, actually, what were your conclusions after the month? Um, after a month, I, you know, I actually didn't feel that different. I felt different during the month. So uh, the first couple of weeks, I felt I didn't uh, have as much energy as I normally do, and I think maybe that was because I wasn't actually eating enough because I didn't realise the sheer volume that I would need to eat of vegetables to equal the same amount of calories that I would normally get from animal protein, mm. which is just you know. It's an easy way to get a macronutrient profile in your diet that's just kind of like a shortcut. So I think I just wasn't eating enough for the first couple of weeks, had a little bit less energy. Then at the end of it, I, I felt pretty good. I didn't really feel notice too many differences, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think energy yeah, could, could have been from more carbohydrates as well because you yeah. replaced the meat with... Like beans I definitely, I definitely didn't enjoy eating as many legumes as I was. I don't generally eat that many legumes just because I don't, I don't really like taste, and they don't really agree with me that well. So, I was having to eat a lot of chickpeas, and um, <laughs> and yeah, it made me pretty gassy. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is really interesting because I wouldn't expect you to feel substantially worse or substantially better because you've got a good quality diet. And I think my mantra is when I get a client walking into my office, they will come from a humanitarian perspective. And I'll say, cool, let's let's deal with your diet and let's make it top quality based on what your beliefs are. But I think one of the problems with the studies and where the media just jump on this and then the consumers jump on this is that they do the trials and they go, 
two different groups. One's standard American diet, so poor quality diet, and the other one is vegan. Who does better? Hello. <laughs> um, the, the vegan, so you're not actually, as Grant was saying, you're not actually testing animal protein versus plant protein. You're testing a poor quality diet with a diet apples, that has been cleaned up. Yeah. And if your starting point is a poor quality diet, you can clean it up to plants or animals or carnivore or whatever, however you want to clean it up, and you will get a better outcome. Yeah, so potentially it's not what people are eating, but maybe what they're not eating that's making the difference yeah. in how they feel. Yeah, any yeah, any I mean, study that improves your diet quality is probably going to improve your health, which is why diet is so important for your health. And, you know, the, the plant-vegan argument, absolutely, there, there is no question when you look at a nutrition comparison or nutrition breakdown between an animal-based diet and a plant-based diet. And we know that because vegans need to supplement B12. End of story, no questions asked. So you can never win a nutrition argument based on certain micronutrients. You, you can patch them up from other places, great, but the nutrition argument will never be won based on nutrients, micronutrients. Hmm. In terms of your carb intake, because I know it can be really confusing for people to know, like, how many carbs should I be eating? How do you track them? How do what you even track is a carb? <laughs> like, what's a good carb, what's a bad carb? So I know that there's no cookie-cutter approach for everyone, but, like, is there kind of a rule of thumb around it or do you just trial and error on yourself? I think it's individualised. It should be individualised. So when you look at the national guidelines, between 45 and 65% of your total energy intake should be carbohydrate. That roughly boils down to 250-ish grams of carbohydrate. So if you have a slice of bread that's 20 grams of carbohydrate, that is how many slices of bread? Well, yeah, I, like 10, 10, 10, know, 10, no, or 10, or 10 or 12. There you go, 10 or 12, thank yeah. you. God uh, slices of, slices yeah. of bread. So I would say that if you are insulin resistant or you're trying to improve your health or you've got some kind of desire to change your life in a positive way, you drop your carbohydrates. Now, that can be down to 200, that can be down to 100, it could be down to 50 based on what you can do that's sustainable long term. I think that's really important. Yeah and also what's going to get you the best outcome with, with everything else you've got going on. Mm-hmm. So I think one of our biggest issues we have at the moment is that word keto, and yeah. everyone loves it. <laughs> We've got keto cowboys everywhere, and I think they are setting, they're setting a lot of people up to fail because people don't know that there's a difference between keto and LCHF or low-carb healthy fat. The ketogenic diet, if you want to do it, you can stick to it absolutely fine. It is the extreme end of low-carb 20 to 25, maybe 30 grams of net carbohydrate. That's not it's even not one banana, right? So I think keto absolutely has its place for therapeutic nutrition. Mm-hmm. So if you have brain cancer, dementia, Parkinson's, epilepsy, which is where it originally came from in the 1920s, and it's a you know therapeutic management that's successful, particularly for children, absolutely go keto, no questions asked. If you've got diabetes, you could go low carb, you can go keto if you want to, but you don't necessarily need to go keto. I see too many people who have said, I've done keto for a month and I can't stick to it, therefore it's not working for me, so I'll just go back to my high-carb diet. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I've got heaps to say about this, but it is a spectrum and people need to be very realistic about balancing their numbers with their life and the realities of what life brings. So I'll take a slightly different male approach to this, I reckon, <laughs> So on the keto thing. So I reckon if you go into the local shopping mall to the food hall, can people actually go and, if they've got any ability to go into this nutritional ketosis, 
um, if you didn't give them food for a, a, couple, a day or two? And the answer is no. The apparatus is just not there. They haven't got what I call metabolic flexibility. They, they can't easily access and burn fat, mm. which in human history has been something that's had to be with humans. We, we've got big brains. We need to be able to provide fuel ketones to them when we haven't got food, and food was not three or four meals plus snacks a day. Yeah. As a sort of general hacking and self-experiment, N equals one thing, everyone would benefit from just having a self-experiment when they do a keto experiment. Get your cubs way down for a month. Turn that apparatus on because what you do is you double your ability to burn body fat. The whole physiology around food and hunger changes and just see what happens. It's just a little bit of a journey of self-discovery. I agree it's not sustainable in the long run. It's not the point of it. It's just to switch that apparatus on and then you can cycle in and out. You can manage to do a bit of fasting. You can manage to miss meals. You can manage not to sort of get overcome by that falling off the glucose cliff, angry stuff where you're just going to stuff down food hand over fist. And I think there's benefits from that for individuals, frankly. Mm. It's, it's not a public health message, but it's going, if I wanted to figure out what made me healthy, I think having a keto experiment's a part of that. It's not the answer. And if you've got diabetes or insulin resistant, then you're going to need to stay down that stricter in any way. That's just the way it is. And if you're, if you're my 18-year-old son, then you'll get away with... A whole ra- any old range of macronutrients because of your insulin sensitivity and your activity and age and maleness, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a really mature portrayal of it. And you have to have a healthy understanding of that to be able to get it. But the reality is there are lots of people who hear, I need to be keto for weight loss. They go there. They probably don't do it properly anyway because no one's really measuring their ketones as, mm-hmm. as they should be. Especially because you have to be so low in yeah, carbohydrates yeah, to actually yeah. be yeah. keto. Yeah, yeah it's, totally not, and, it's totally not sustainable. Yeah. And I don't think humans should be in ketosis no. the whole time. I think it would be really bad for you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but how, how it plays out, I wish it could play out as we intended to in our What the Fat books because that's mm-hmm. why we wrote these books, <laughs> yeah. to, to provide safe and sustainable messages for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, Gwen, I, I, I totally agree with you about the cycling in and out of ketosis. And, of course, you can eat low carb and you can eat a slightly higher level of carbohydrate that would not necessarily keep you in deep ketosis, but you could throw in a little bit of fasting and you can get there very quickly and very cheaply because mm. fasting mm. costs very little. I, I could sometimes have a weekend where things go a little bit haywire and you know be totally out of nutritional ketosis. I just miss breakfast on Monday and lunch on Monday and by the evening I'm in full ketosis again because I've got that ability to switch straight into it. And, uh, that, and, and that's and, exactly and humans that. Should, humans should have that. That's exactly, you've hit the nail on the head. So the word is metabolic flexibility. So it's not necessarily being high carb all the time, even if it works for you, or keto all the time. It's being able to switch in and out and your body to adapt to either end of that fuel utilisation spectrum. And so to be able to do that, how, how can people sort of improve their metabolic flexibility? Well, I think you, Grant is right, you, you have to be fat adapted to start with. You've got to allow your metabolic machinery to adapt to using fat as a fuel. So it's got to have inadequate glucose to run the brain, which is mm. typically under 100 to 120 grams of carbohydrate a day. The brain needs fuel. It's not going to just turn stupid on you. It's, it's, it's going to keep going. And so it's going to derive that from ketones. And if you're not used to doing that, it's going to need the stress of... And the ketones come from fat. Yes, oxidising fat. Fat breakdown, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because that's kind of what you did with Coast to Coast, right? You trained with a high-fat, low-carb. 
Yeah, interestingly, I did that straight after um, I had a wee chat with Grant Schofield, actually, and he suggested that I give a high-fat, low-carb approach to my training. This was a couple of years ago. And so that's what I did. I then I trained for about four months leading up to the event, which is like a big multi-sport event, uh, reasonably low-carb and high-fat, and I found it hugely beneficial just for my training and for everything. I Instead of having to rely on uh, energy, carbohydrate, gels every sort of hour during a long period of exercise I was able to go without any food for most of the duration of my training things I remember I did a I did a training run over this it was a trail run and it was like a five-hour trail run and I did it with a training partner I did it on a fasted stomach so I hadn't even eaten any breakfast and then he was having to have energy shots every hour or so and I was fine I just had sustained level of energy the whole time. It's exactly what we're talking about, and it's interesting that one of my good friends, Dr. Dan Plews, who's, who's actually now the sports scientist with Team New Zealand Sailing, in October won the entire age group race and set the course record at the Hawaii Ironman, and he's done that through his keto approach to training. Exactly what you just described, some five-hour sessions with no breakfast and keep the intensity down and no food, and he doubles or even triples his ability of his body to use fat. Of course, what he does when he's racing is he, he shovels in the carbs then. Because racing is a different ball game to Racing is a different ball game, but yeah. the training yeah, and right. the training effects of that are massive. We've said a lot about that, but, you know, the guys just set the world record. And it's interesting, wow. for every Dan Plews, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, N equals one experiments around the world that are getting the same kind of results. But the naysayers look at the research and go, oh, the research is not there. And the research is not there because you need that lengthy period for your body to properly fat adapt to get the benefits. So the research now, they've looked at fat adapting people for a day, fat adapting people for a week, fat adapting people for two weeks. And now the researchers are wisening up and doing studies over 12 weeks. And there's one by Jeff Volick in the States who did a study of um, athletes that have been fat adapted for nine months. It wasn't a performance study, but found some very, very interesting metabolic adaptations. So the research is actually catching up. But of course, the research doesn't afford the luxury of that individual day-to-day manipulation to work out what works for you because it's individual responses that are so powerful, so important. Yeah, I really wish I'd known all of that before I did the Auckland Marathon because it's my first marathon. I was really excited about it. And I kind of went for that approach that everyone tells you. And they say, oh, I have a big bowl of carbs the night before. Just, you know, shovel them into you a few days beforehand. Eat as many carbs as you can. <laughs> and so I did. I was like, great, fantastic. This is the best thing ever. And then on the day, because I'd, well, I guess there, there were probably a few factors why I did so badly. But I think I thought I had trained enough. And then on, on the day I got to, I think it was like 25 Ks, and I had nothing in the tank, nothing. Uh, ouch. Yeah, it was horrific. And then I think, well, I did everything right. You know, I I trained, I, I ate lots of carbs in the, in the days leading up to it. I had bliss balls as, as energy <laughs> thing, which is the worst possible thing because they melt together and it was just horrific. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they melted onto my phone and everything. It's really interesting, and I wonder if it would have been a different outcome if I had done it with fat and low carb and just seen how how it went. So. I, I just think that's the great tragedy of popular endurance sport, and you see it even more magnified at these Ironman type events, where despite all that training and commitment, you know, two thirds of the population are still overweight or obese, and the same proportion as the population, which is a shame. And the worst thing is that everyone just runs out of fuel and 
I've pretty much guessed the percentages. By the end of the bike ride, 70% of people are gone. By a quarter of the way into the Ironman run, 98% of the people are gone. And it's just like all these people and their poor relatives have put all this time and money for it and just having a bad day. And it's awful for everyone. Totally avoidable. Mm. T- absolutely 100% avoidable. And yeah. it's the sort of whole gel Gatorade industry that's really driven that. Oh, you, know, you know, for me, what, what's really interesting is looking at the logic blended with the physiology. And if you are a high-carb athlete and you run out of carbohydrate or you don't put enough carbohydrate in, your glycogen is, is not there like it, like it should be, then your body turns to fat burning. And if your body's not habitually used to using body fat as a fuel, it's going, what am I doing? Like, what are you, how do what are we you use doing? How, how do I use this? Whereas the beauty about low-carb healthy fat or keto is that it frees you from the slavery of having to feed yourself every hour on the hour because your body's used to burning your body fat as fuel. So if you don't feed it, it goes, oh, I'll just carry on doing what I'm used to doing. But I wonder, is there like a difference between men and women in terms of fundamental nutrition? Would you say that women perhaps need a higher carb intake than men? Or does it not really matter? It's just completely individual. There is talk of that. And I think there is a smidgen of research about that. But it's really coming from that anecdotal, some females that have just gone too low. They've gone too low too quickly. And the implications have come out in compromised thyroid mm-hmm. and some other hormonal and, and yeah, some other things. hormonal issues like menstruation. Yeah. So I think I certainly think men and women are very different, but I think that there there are now people going in the opposite direction and going, Oh no, women shouldn't go low carb. No, 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 that's not the case. Women just need to be a little bit more careful and more mindful and more attuned to their bodies to see what the right amount of carb is for them. And it might be low, but it might not be as low as what men can get away with. And it's also the rate at which they do this. So there's a lot involved. I I don't think it's quite as simple as women need more carbs than men. I I just don't think that. Here's my take on it. And it's hard as a male to talk about menses and ovulation and follicular and luteal phases. Mm. Especially because everyone's like, you don't know anything about it. I I agree. (laughs) I agree. And frankly, I don't actually want to. But But in this case, we've got to get into it because there's a nutritional component. So I'll tell you what's interesting is the follicular phase, you've got lower progesterone and higher estrogen and endurance performance is enhanced by probably up to 20% in that phase. And in the luteal phase, post-ovulation, it's not enhanced and body metabolic rate goes up, so your caloric requirement's higher. But interesting, cravings, especially for sweet food, go way up. And so could you work with those two different things? And and it could be in the follicular phase, you you could fast and go low-carb then, and then in the luteal phase, when you've got those cravings, just go with them a bit more. And there's only one study that's done that, and it was a conventional study, but they showed that women who followed that pattern did at least as well, if not better, than women who just tried hard through the entire cycle. So that's still to be fully understood. But if it was me, and it's not... (laughs) <laughs> that, that, yeah. <laughs> I'll be, give it a go. I'd be, yeah. I'd be giving that a go, you know, yeah. seeing, seeing what happened. Mm. Yeah. I also think there's a fundamental difference between men's attitude to food and eating and, and women's. So men, like I see this in clients, you can tell men, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Women, women think about it a lot and go, really, should I do that or should I add that or should I, should I do this twice or oh, I'm not, not so sure about that or I'm mm-hmm. feeling a little bit emotional so I'm going to do triple the amount of that. So 
men and women are, are just different mm. from that perspective, from a behavioural perspective. You should know that as a resident psychologist. Mm. Well, just as a resident <laughs> husband, I've, I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think anybody who's married probably understands that, yeah. yeah. One thing I want to talk about is fasting, because I think fasting is a hugely interesting uh, topic, and it seems to be growing and growing and growing, and I think it's um, seems to be proving itself more and more as a treatment for lots of different ailments and diseases. And it's, I think the thing that I love about it is because it's free. And so, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it goes against that whole the medical industry, which is just built on drugs, essentially, I think. So what made you write the book, What the Fast?, well, first of all, fasting's been around. There's nothing new about fasting. Attached to every religion, you stop eating for a while, you generally feel better. But the science had only just recently begun, this whole idea of autophagy, the fact that there's a self-cleaning program in the lysosome in every cell of your body that's only activated under what we call nutrient stress. In other words, when you stop eating, this little cell part swings into action and starts recycling old parts of the cell and picking up bits and pieces uh, because it needs the nutrients. And then when it's done, it goes to the cell wall and acts extracellular and starts doing it in the cytoplasm. So you've got this self-cleaning program, and it's only activated when insulin and glucose are back to their baseline levels. In other words, you're fasted. And that's hardly ever in, in the Western world, is well, it? That's right. Well, that's yeah. right. That, that was the whole idea of breakfast, breaking mm. the fast, is that naturally, and that still happens, you see people getting into a mild ketosis every night. That's just a normal human condition. But... For most of us, especially if you're insulin resistant, the, the fast will need to go on for a bit longer. So you could just end up skipping breakfast or skipping breakfast and lunch and having a more restricted feeding window. You're able to drive, after probably for most people, about 14 hours, everything down to baseline and get that autophagy going. It seems to be an absolute no-brainer for health. But I just think that you have to already be a good fat burner to tolerate that. You know, I like Mosley's 5-2 type diet, but only under the conditions where you're not just eating whatever you like on the other five days. Yeah. That you would take some careful consideration about nutrients and eat a bit more fat, and then, you know, maybe chuck those two days in. I like those. And that's the sort of approach we've tried to advance in What the Fast. And that was why we wrote What the Fast, is because it was the logical step for What the Fat, because it frees you from food and you end up doing some intermittent fasting anyway. Mm. So it was the natural progression, really. Yeah, because the the 5-2 diet is um, quite interesting, isn't it? Because... People mainly go on it for weight loss reasons. It's probably a good baby step into figuring out fasting and more of the overall idea of it. But I think there's a bit of a problem that people think, oh, you lose heaps of weight. But I guess if you're just restricting two days worth of calories, wouldn't you lose weight anyway if you just did that on every day? You know, so so there's not really a lot of if you didn't make up for those calories, which some people do. So true, but 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 on average they don't, right? So like that's that is sort of the thing. You go, you you restrict your eating window down, or eat less a whole day. Do you eat more the next day? Oh hell yeah! But do you eat enough to make up for what you didn't eat? And the answer is on the average, no. It's it's possible to do it. I've tried it, but yeah. So it's kind of interesting. I think that it's a bit of a weird one because. It seems like this revolutionary weight loss thing when when you think about it, not really. It's mm-hmm. just like you're, you're cutting down two days' worth of food. So I guess eventually you will lose weight. I don't know. Well, I mean, the longest heart fast in the history of modern medicine that's published in the medical literature is a fat Scotsman who turns up in the late 60s to an Edinburgh hospital mm-hmm. at 400 and something pounds, pronounces himself too fat, doctors agree, Tells him he's worked out some calculations, and if he doesn't eat for a year, he'll be down to weight. They're like, oh, hang on. 
And, but if you go, so, like, I'm doing it anyway. So, like, you can either choose to keep an eye on me or not. So they oh give him some goodness. multivitamins, and he fasts for 382 days. Uh, maintains an extensively normal blood sugar, normal yeah. everything else. And after 382 days, he's down to 185 pounds. And it's hilariously logical, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that. Yeah, do not try this at home. As a solution. But it yeah. just, uh, you know, it points to a whole bit of physiology that, you know, actually mm. is possible. And it does kind of put it into perspective at how much we eat out of habit, not when we're actually hungry. And Aunt and I have done a little bit of fasting art for more than me. What I found was on the first few days, I found it really difficult because I was starving hungry at 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 6 p.m. And But that's just when I eat because I eat at 12 p.m. most days, you know, I eat at the same time. So then I started to realize, am, am I actually hungry? Is my body just used to being fed at certain times? And then after a few days, then I wasn't hungry. It's like occasionally that I'd get hungry. So I, thought. I call it uh, the difference between physiological hunger and psychological hunger. Mm. So I had I did a three day fast, and I did it because I couldn't write a book and have not done an advanced fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. even though three days is not that advanced. And in those three days, I was probably physically hungry for about fifteen minutes, mm. and I just occupied myself and um, and I got over it. But to be perfectly honest, I was psychologically hungry because I'm a foodie and I enjoy eating. I found it a real battle. I was playing a battle with my psyche, mm. really. So I think when people really get honest and look physiologically, think about, am I physically hungry? If you fat adapted, the answer is probably no. Well, you hang around 10 minutes, have a glass of water and a cup of tea, and it goes away. Yeah, exactly. We're so conditioned to, you know, eating when the clock tells us to eat, and it starts at school when you have – it used to be playtime, and it's now called morning tea time. You've got to eat morning tea, you've got to eat lunch, and you've got to come home from school, and you've got to eat after school, and you've got to eat dinner, and then you've got to have a snack after dinner because dessert's yeah. really popular. And how on earth will you have energy if you don't have oh, breakfast? No. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, when I talk to clients about fasting, you can just see their their face covered with nervousness. And when they come back, they go, you know, I was really nervous that I wouldn't be able to do this because I thought I'd be low in energy and just fatigued. And the exact opposite has happened. Mm. And that's what, what were your experiences about when you were doing? People. So probably about seven years ago, I decided to try my first fast, and I was just going to fast until midday. So basically, just skipping breakfast. And I made it till 11 o'clock, and then I had to break my fast because I, I couldn't do it. And I was like, this is crazy. And I was just like, no. Nah. So I just had to eat some food. And then I was like, right, okay, the next day I'm going to do it properly. The next day I made it to 12 o'clock. I was like, great, okay. And then I sort of built on that, and then I did a one-day fast a few weeks later. And then a few you know, months after that, I might, might have tried a two-day fast. And then I've done a couple of three-day fasts. And then last year I did a five-day fast, which is my longest one. And every time that I do them, I find them really interesting because it reignites that thought that you were just talking about, Maddie, about how I think most of us eat out of habit, not out of actually being hungry. So I think not only is it a really good exercise to do for us nutritionally and for our health, I think it's also really good just to give it a go and challenge us, um, our psychology and the way that we think about food because it definitely changed the way I think about food. And, and I guess it is the ultimate detox, right? Like it gives yeah. your body a chance mm. to just repair because it's not so busy digesting 24-7. Yeah. Is that correct? And I found, yeah. found that you know, my brain seems to function at a, a higher rate or something. I just My thoughts just seem a bit more snappy when I'm in a fasted state, 
Well, you're, and in, you're in deep ketosis, so yeah. there, I agree. there you go. I, You've got your brain fertilizer going. Yeah. yeah. I wrote all of what the fast fasted. Wow. So, so, so it seemed like I, the right thing to do. But, yeah, but, 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 but actually writing requires some level of actual concentration. Mm. Yep. And I write really well, like you are saying, mm. when you fasted. Yeah. Bit of a random question, but I'm just quite interested in this. In terms of organic meat versus non-organic meat, say so no, like that's not available for, for everyone, but how bad do you think the problem is with, for example, like the glyphosate and the chemicals that are in the grass that's eaten by the cows that we now eat? Do you think that that is going to become more and more of an issue? I don't think there's any way of scientifically known, but on first yeah. principles you'd go... Hell no. Yeah. And, and so, but it's not just the glycosates and all that sort of stuff and what they eat. Mm. It's also the perverse practice of feeding things like antibiotics to yeah. animals to make them fatter. The perverse oh. thing of feeding some of them grains to make them fatter and what that does to the fat structure of the animal and making it worse. And so, basically, industrial farming. Mm. on first principles appears to be just a dumb idea for, first of all, the health of the animal. Yeah. And if it's the health of the animal, it's probably the health of you yeah. because we're eating it. So mm. that would be my mm. take on I it. I think glyphosate probably is on everyone's sort of lips at the moment because of that case. Yeah. That was one. So when you hear the word, it's like... Yeah, no glyphosate. it seems to be sort of sure. the yeah. new yeah. scary thing. It, it is, yeah. and I would not be so bold as to say those additives are harmless so if everyone could afford organic or non-organic, I'd mm. go, go organic. But there's a big, I, there's a big yeah. unknown. I think that a large proportion of the population, those that are typically metabolically well-regulated and healthy, will sell through with no problem. But I think there are lots of people that stuff's happening and it's our modern lifestyle, our modern world, gut bacteria. They are not faring well in our current food environment. And I think throw in glyphosates and other stuff, that's just going to be like the perfect storm for a lot of people. So if people, I'm just thinking like tangible sort of takeaways from today, if they want to start kind of upping their fats, lowering their carbs, just generally helping their health through diet today, what are some quick and easy things that, that they can do? Ditch the packets. Yeah. <laughs> Go around the supermarket or the vegetable shop or the butchery and buy foods that don't come in packets. Would be my the simplest currency there is of fresh, about it. Fresh, well, there's a level below that as well, isn't there? Like actual sugar. Mm. I think there's no question that that's bad for you no matter what, but it hides like tomato sauce 50%. Yeah. Uh, sweet chili sauce, 75%, and it's a liquid, so it's all sugar. And but, I guess, like, uh, find out the other names for sugar as yeah, well, yeah, because yeah, it's exactly. hidden so well yeah. in packaged foods. Yeah. And then the whole starch thing. You know, what is, is starchy food needed? So what would just happen to you if you stopped eating rice, pasta, potatoes, and bread? Mm. What would happen to you? And substituted that with a bit more fat on different things. What would happen to you? Would, would you turn... Um, nasty and feral and stupid or would it actually be good for your health yeah, so yeah. that's a good experiment isn't it and that's my challenge so that's what I would be doing yeah. yeah I do think that micronutrients are under acknowledged and I think that's really where, where it all lies so if you're going to leave something out you've got to replace it with something else that has enough micronutrients so the classic example is if you take out all the breads and cereals and all the starches, you might potentially be at risk of getting B vitamin B1 deficiency. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 
making sure you had some nuts and seeds and lots of green vegetables and good quality meats that will give you what you need. And mm. you're going to do that anyway. You don't need to suddenly go and seek out what's, you know, 10 sources high in vitamin B1. It naturally happens anyway because that's what you, the foods you gravitate towards. Yeah, because I wonder if that's where uh, quite a few people seem to go wrong with, with keto is that they take out carbs but don't up the fat enough. Totally. Yeah, and they all... Low carb, low fat. Yeah, and they always say, like, oh, I'm so hungry, I can't handle it, like, I don't have any energy, it was awful. Well, that's sort of the Ducan diet, which I've I've tried every conceivable diet, because I think it's my job to, which is really... Have you tried carnival? No, I haven't tried carnival. I'm not really allowed to do that. My whole family's just freaking out with that, so... I I still think... (laughs) Well, the, the reason I haven't tried carnival is that... Well, first of all, I think that a healthy humans have been omnivorous. That, that is our condition. And I think some people do do well on a meat-only diet. And I think the probable reason that is for some reason their body is responding poorly to something in some of the Agreed. vegetables they eat. And by yeah. dropping those, they get rid of that autoimmune Agreed. problem or whatever yeah. it is, and they yeah. will do really well. I just I think humans are by nature omnivorous, and that's my philosophy. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, I refuse so, to try it on that basis. And social factors yeah. come into it hugely, which yeah. I think we can sometimes forget with different diets and how important social factors are. It's hard to be on a carnivore diet, I would mm. imagine. Yeah, just um, just going back to what we were talking about before about ways to improve your health and cutting out or reducing carbohydrates. And then, you know, one thing that we do is that we then try and replace those carbohydrates with far more nutrient-dense alternative carbohydrates like vegetables, so making broccoli and rice, cauliflower rice and zucchini noodles and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think if you remember that, if you're on a high-carb diet, every food that you eat, you can reproduce in some way in low-carb. Mm-hmm. You can. Yeah. Like, I'm not into keto pancakes or all that kind of stuff. I'm a very simple eater, but you can do that. Mm. Yeah. Just one other question I had. What are your thoughts on sugar tax? Do you think that should be something that New Zealand should look to implement? It'd be one way of raising money. I think on its own it wouldn't actually do anything, but it would be one way of putting a stick in the ground going, this stuff's actually bad for our health and it would raise money for that billions of dollars that we need to keep us healthy. So that, that's mm. one possible way of doing it. It creates other complexities as well. I would support it, but I would support it at a high level, as high as you can possibly get away with. That would actually deter people from buying certain items. If you put something up an extra 30 cents or even an extra 50 cents, it's like, oh. So I don't think it would make any difference to demand particularly, mm. um, but it would say that the government now thinks this is bad for you and it would raise money. Yeah. Mm. And so I think the difference between a sugar tax and a sugary beverage tax would be that every industry that's using sugar needs to be penalised, not just the beverage industry. Mm-hmm. So it would be more fair. So yeah. I would support a higher level tax. Uh, across all industries that are using sugar, I think that would, as you say, at least generate money that you can put into prevention. You've got to watch what you do with these things, don't you? Because so all of a sudden you end up with perversities because there'll be some level of sugar. Yeah. And then everyone will come in at 999% of it mm. and there'll be low sugar. Well, uh, yeah, in fact, well, it's not. I wonder if then, then uh, companies would start using a lot more artificial sugar. And, yeah, and perhaps they would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Every action has a reaction. It, it, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a, it's. Complex. Yeah, yeah I, like, I like the idea of it. I think it's a good idea. In theory. I, in theory, yeah. I'd love to see, you know, if they took that money that, uh, you know, came from sugar and then put it to subsidise fresh um, fruit and veggies. That's or right. Yeah, that would be awesome. So just it was a cross-subsidisation. Mm. Uh, people are buying – if you're buying this, you're making it cheap, this stuff cheaper for everyone else. Mm. Oh, that'd be Because great. that would yeah. – I mean, if anything – I know every action has a reaction, but if anything, that would send a very, very powerful message to the consumer. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is a Australia doesn't have GST on fresh food, and as far as I can tell, it's made not a blind bit of difference to the consumption of crappy <laughs> food in Australia, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah. And just to finish off, we have a question that we ask all of our guests. And if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? Grant, let's start with you. Oh, beef. <laughs> I just like beef. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, a nutri- it's an overlooked, nutrient-dense yeah. food, and it would be not just talking about beef steaks, we're talking about the whole animal. Mm. So can you include the whole animal? Is that one? Absolutely. That yeah. Yep, so just a cow. Yeah. 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 So you're going to go cow? Oh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's smart because then you've got the liver, you can, yeah. you know. Yeah, true. Liver uh, Eggs. Oh, it's going to be all animal products, isn't it? And I really like fresh caught kingfish, although I, mm. I do understand that that's not sustainable and we can't keep doing that because they're just a beautiful yeah. once live fish and we shouldn't catch them, but gosh, they're nice. In this hypothetical world, everything's In a perfect world, yeah, right. you can have <laughs> yeah. copious amounts of whatever you like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, there's a limit on catching snapper, but there's no limit on kingfish. And kingfish are be. enormous. Oh, every time my neighbour brings a kingfish home and we eat it. Maybe you only need one to go around a lot of people. I know, but it's just a beautiful big animal that's taken mm. a long time to grow that big. Yeah. You know, okay, on a brighter note, um, yeah. I, would go for, <laughs> I would go for lamb, halloumi cheese and asparagus. Oh, that's a good Great combo. combo. Yeah, that's really good. Mm. You get a bit boring as a meal after a while, frankly. Well, so would eggs and the whole animal and kingfish. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can do them, though. You're just on the one meal. Yeah, well, you know me. I like routine. Mm. Yeah, true, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And halloumi adds a bit of sort of salty, whereas yours might get a bit bland after a while. This is, he, he just said he, he wouldn't go on the carnival diet and he's just picked, <laughs> yeah. he's picked cow. Oh, it's, a, it's a pretend world, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's been so good talking to you guys today. If people want to follow you or get hold of you, read your books. Blogs and Yeah, whatnot. how can people get after you? Well, I have a Facebook page, Karen's and Dietitian, that I regularly communicate on. I don't have a blog, so that's my major thing. I'm also on Twitter. And, of course, our What the Fat website has got all the information about our books. And, of course, you, know, you just have to ask Dr. Google to get in touch with someone, and they provide the answer. And it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, whatthefatbook.com website's right there. You've got a blog, though. You've got, got a, a good blog. Oh, yeah, profgrant.com is my blog. So I try and write mainly about science, actually, because studies come up and you're just like, oh, my goodness, we've got to write something about that. Yeah. Uh, just the interpretation of studies and things. I mean, that's, first of all, that's my job and I find it interesting, but it's also, I just mm. think it needs to be done. It's so mm. beneficial for people like me that have no idea. So that's <laughs> great. Oh, thank you both so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. It's been lovely having a chat. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.